to episode 12 of Long Hair Do Care. My name is Georgie Corkery. I'm your host. Uh, go by she, her, hers. Also happy to go by they, them, theirs. And I do have long hair. And I do care a lot about uh, queer, intersectional, eco-feminism. And that's what this podcast is about. And today's topic is the word queer and how I use it. And to help me through this discussion, I have a special guest, uh, Chris Glad. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, yeah, so I'm Chris. I use the them pronouns. And uh, I also have long hair and do care in like a very non-binary way. Um, happy to talk about my bro flow at length and how I care. Um, but yeah, I am professionally gay in a variety of roles. I've worked in queer youth programming. Um, and my undergrad degree is in gender studies, and I'm currently working on a variety of equity, um, equity-centric projects in higher education. Um, but what we're here to talk about today uh, <laughs> is my undergrad honors thesis research, which was on the socio-historical development of the word queer. So basically, those were a lot of big words to mean I spent a year of my life looking at the word queer and how it's picked up and gained and lost and regained meanings over the 150 years that it's been in our language associated with homosexuality. Which is such a cool thing to do a thesis on. Um, I wish I, I didn't even do a thesis as my undergrad and, like, let alone something cool. I was just like, yeah, environmentalism. I like the alternative food systems better than the food system. So how cool to, like, be able to deep dive into that. Yeah. Uh, it actually started because... Uh, Started probably around 2016, 2017 in peak Tumblr discourse times. Tumblr, um, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, I originally started the project because people on the internet were arguing about who can use the word queer and whether it can be used and in what context. And really, can asexuals use this word? Hmm. How dare you? And I'm like, all right. As <laughs> like, an asexual queer person, we gotta figure who's also this gender out. queer and non binary and. All of you are wrong. All of you are wrong. Let me tell you why. Um, so I did, I started this project just as like, all right, I'm going to go look up who is right and then go yell at some people on the internet about it. Uh, That's a good uh, launching off point. And then I couldn't find who was what right? I was looking for in an easy amount of way. Nope. I couldn't find what I was looking for in an uh, easily packaged answer. Um, and I was like, okay, but now I'm interested. Now I gotta know. Uh, so it turned into me spending a year of my life digging through archival sources and queer theory, um, and all sorts of nonsense just to be like, all right, Tumblr, (laughs) even the people I agree with, you're wrong, too. At least a little bit. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm so excited to talk about it and the word queer because, as as everyone knows, uh, queer is part of uh, how I describe this podcast and how I describe myself. Um, you know that if you've listened to any of the other episodes. Um, but before we do that, we have to jump into the cats and Teslas and content of the week. Um, I interacted with... Um, I interacted with two cats this week, and one from my neighborhood. I don't actually know this cat's name, but I was walking around with my soon-to-be-new landlord in my neighborhood, and we ran into a cat. It was very cute. Um, and then another cat, I was in Montana last week, Livingston, Montana, 
and at a campground, and there's these folks in a van, and they had a cat in their van, which is, like, not the first cat in a van that I've seen this summer, uh, which is kind of crazy. Uh, very cute. I forget the cat's name. Uh, I hope that cat has a fulfilled life in that van. Um, but I, because I was in Montana, I did get to see some wildlife. Unfortunately, no bears. Uh, I was very scared of seeing bears, but I also wanted to see a bear. No bears, but I saw a snake. It was just like a little garden snake, and it scared me on my way to the bathroom. It almost literally scared the shit out of me, and uh, I screamed really loud, and then my friend came over and was like, everything okay? And I was like, there's a little snake. And uh, <laughs> just like, you know, thousands of years of evolution made me scream, and I almost stepped on it, which I'm glad I didn't. So how about you? Any any cats? Any wildlife? Uh, no cats. I'm not... A- oh, wait, yes. I was over at my friend's house, and they have a lot of cats. So I did interact with cats, and they have, like, four cats and two dogs. That's um, a lot of animals. Yeah, it is. Um, they're great. I love them. It's why I bring them up with this podcast, because even thinking about cute things just, like, drops dopamine. So hopefully all of you got your good dose of dopamine just now. Um, the Teslas for the week, uh, I saw 46 and five halves, Teslas. Uh, the halves, Chris are because I see electric cars mm-hmm. that are cool because they're electric cars, but they're not Teslas. Okay. So that's why they're halves. I see. Um, yeah. No. And I, I, before, I guess the reason why it's lower this week is because I was in Montana. Montana, unlike California, is just not a Tesla town. Not a Tesla place. No, not no. really. No, uh, lots of I saw Trump flags and stuff. No, not many Teslas. Um, and then uh, moving on to our conscious content consumption of the week. Um, this is actually a book I read a while ago. It's super good. I recommend everybody read it. It's a novel and a page turner. You like can't stop turning it. It's called The Vanishing Half by Britt Burnett. It was actually published in 2020. I went to King's English. Everyone should go there. And I was just like... Shop local, shop indie bookstores. Yeah, shop local. And uh, I was like, what do you recommend? And they're like, this looks good. And uh, it was really good. So Vanishing Half by Britt Burnett came out 2020. It was number one on New York Times uh, fiction bestseller, which I saw right after I read it, so I felt super cool. Um, And apparently HBO has... acquired rights to develop a limited series on it with the author, Britt Burnett, as an executive producer. So that's really cool. I'm excited to see that. It was also one of Barack Obama's favorite books of the year, which um, it's just been a theme in my life to happen to read one of Obama's favorite books. So I don't know. We have a kinship that way. Him and I, he, I'm sure, knows it. It is a novel, a multi-generation multi-generational family saga set between 1940s and 1990s and centers on identical twin sisters, Desiree and Stella. Um, oh, those and, are great names. Yeah, great names. Uh, they are two light-skinned black sisters who were raised in a fictional town of Mallard, Louisiana and witnessed the lynching of their own father in the early 1940s. Mm-hmm. And then in 1954, when they were 16, they ran away to New Orleans. And then Stella disappeared and the whole thing about the town is that it was founded by this guy person of color dark skin who is like well i want my descendants to be as light skin as possible to the point where they're no longer people of color and mm-hmm. stella and desiree 
they are at that point. And mm-hmm. so it kind of takes off from there with the two sisters, and they do have children. It's fascinating. There is indeed at least one queer character in there, arguably two. Two quotes that I have. The first one, there are many ways to be alienated from someone, few to actually belong. I think that's something well, that's, that's... That's... that's- that's good. It's just like line drop after line drop in this All book right. of really good writing. And I was like, wow, that's true. Because like it's so easy to think about how we alienate ourselves from one another, whether that's because we put each other into boxes or because we think nobody will understand, which yeah. in some cases n- nobody will understand, but we still have to connect. And so those few actual ways to belong I think are really important. And yeah. the book highlights that in its own poetic way. Nice. I love that quote because it says something really specific about the way that we create community. Especially the like queer community. Thinking queer like community, about yeah. that. Oftentimes the way we construct a community are us requires creating a them. Yeah. And alienating that them to create an us. Mm-hmm. And Personally, I think that's bullshit. Like, can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> you can swear okay, all you cool. want. Cool. Uh, now some people are like, no, this is... No filters here. All right, cool. Um, yeah, so I, that's a very profound observation. It's, it's a good quote, and this next one is just it's so good. Okay. <clears throat> a town always looked different once you returned, like a house where all the furniture had shifted three inches. You wouldn't mistake it for a stranger's stranger's house, but you'd keep banging your shins on the table corners. And I like that. That just paints a really good picture. And, you know, I didn't leave necessarily the city or the valley that I grew up in, but uh, I did leave the neighborhood. And for a long time going back to it, it was like, oh, like something feels off. But now in my brain, it certainly feels... Like, oh, that that has a certain part in my life, and I think we really do have to reconcile with the places we're from, because topophilia, love of place, is huge. Another reason why I am a big environmentalist. I've um, never heard that word before. I love that. It's such a good word. Topophilia. And yeah, like okay. you leave somewhere that you love, even if it's somewhere that you didn't love, and yeah. it's kind of a, what's that syndrome, Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. Even if you feel that with a place and you like hate where you grew up, there's yeah. still like a sense of like, oh, this was mine. Yeah. Um, Can, uh, I actually have a huge, huge piece of that with Utah because like I grew up as a queer person in suburban Utah. Yeah. Not a lot of queer people out and about in, in suburban suburbia. Utah <laughs> in like 2007. Yeah. Like, just not a lot of people for me to be like, ah, yes, that is who I am. Yeah. I see myself reflecting And even my if there are, they're in their little houses. Because exactly. they're because scared they're... to come out. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> ways. Um, but, uh, like, I really, like, for the first time, from the first time I realized that I could live somewhere else when I grew up, I wanted to live somewhere, dear God, anywhere else when yep. I grew up. Um, and so far that hasn't happened. I mm-hmm. have lived, I went to the U., and I've lived in Salt Lake City since I could choose to live somewhere. Well, luckily Salt Lake City yeah. seems to be shaping up to be pretty dope. I actually really like it, you I, know? Like, I love it. It's so uh, hard to leave. Like, so, I had a lot of resentment for this place. Like, I went to the U because in-state tuition, and I wasn't going to pay out-of-state mm-hmm. tuition. But uh, as I've been here, I've kind of learned 
and developed that topophilia. Yeah. Is that what the word was? Topophilia. topophilia. It's like a topographic map. Okay, got it. So um, you're welcome, everybody, for yeah. a new word. That's, that's great. I love that. <laughs> Hopefully there's a few new words today. But yeah, that the book, it really hones in on that feeling. And again, those are just two little bits of excellent writing. whole book is great. Again, Vanishing Half by Britt Burnett. That being said, do you have any uh, conscious content consumption that you want to share real quick before we dive yeah. into the topic? Yes, I do. Um... So, a book series that I have been loving is, the first one is called The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, and this, uh, I read that while I listened to the audiobook um, back in January when I had COVID. Mm. Um, I had to, <laughs> like, I didn't get it that bad. Um, but you still God, need to distract I, yourself somehow. Yeah, no. So, I still tested positive, so I had to quarantine myself in my room for like a week and a half until yeah. my symptoms had cleared up and had been long enough that I could and good re-emerge. content is a good um, way to uh, exactly so quarantine. I wasn't sick enough to be miserable thank God I was super bored and miserable <laughs> so I listened to a lot of audiobooks uh, and I listened to the first one A Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue while I had COVID and it was so good what is it about um, yeah so it's historical why not really YA fiction but historical fiction about, uh, it centers on a, he's not a lord, um, a duke? Nah, he's like somewhere in the vague, Government? No, like, in, kind of up there in the English, uh, aristocracy, like, okay. kind of like, upper class, like, has a title kind of thing, I can't yeah. remember what the title is, um, his name is Henry Montague, he goes by Monty because fuck his first name. And, like, that was a deeply relatable queer feel. He is in love with his best friend, Percy. And, oh, okay. Yeah, it's, like... Monty they, and Percy. Monty and Percy. But they, before they have to go off and be, like, real adults, they go on an adventure to the continent for, like, kind of one last hurrah of not adulthood. Do they get to... Maybe it's a spoiler. Yeah, they do! Oh, that's so good! Because <laughs> so I hate good. it when it doesn't happen. No, it does! And, like... Uh, Monty is kind of an insufferable prat for the first half of the book, but then he has a character arc, and he grows and realizes that, oh, hey, there are people outside of me, and it's Hell so yeah. good. So what is it called again? A Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, and then the Gentleman's second book... Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. The second book focuses on his little sister, Felicity, who comes with them on their, uh, European adventure, much to his eternal chagrin. Uh, <laughs> Felicity comes with, and she's a pain in the ass, and... I love her. <laughs> uh, but so the second one is A Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy. Oh, and it is hell yeah. so good. So another it, queer yeah. character? Yeah, so she Felicity is trying to become a doctor, but as it is like 1800s England, uh, all the doctors are like <laughs> super sexist. No, you are a woman. You can't train with us. You can be a midwife or a herbalist. And she's like, I don't want to be either of those two things. I want to be a doctor. And they're yeah. like, ha, no. But she ends up going on this adventure trying to become a scientist in some way, shape, or form. And she is the ace feminist of my heart. I adore Felicity Montague. I would <laughs> die for this fictional well, character. I I'll love her. I'll have to put these books on yeah. my, my ever-growing list. Yeah. They're both good audiobooks. Uh, our local library has them. That's where I listen to them Ooh, from. There's that um, app Libby. Yeah. Maybe I'll use yep. that. Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue and A Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy by Mackenzie Lee. 
perfect. They're so good. Some queer characters, which queer characters, uh, and like the first one explores like sexism and disability and race in addition to queerness, dope. which is so good in a historical fiction. Text. Put a nice little intersectional in there. It was so good because uh, Monty's love interest, Percy, uh, is a black man, mm-hmm. and it explores all of the interesting race and class dynamics with that, and then Felicity is obviously a woman. It just explores all of these issues in a very, very, very good way. Anyways. Well, they are on my list, and let's use that, those queer characters, as the segue all right. to our topic. And uh, I'm just going to kind of let you take it away with your, I guess, findings with the thesis yeah. you wrote, and maybe now how you understand the word and use the word queer. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, let, let's have cool. you go. Cool, cool, cool. So... The word queer entered the English language about 500 years ago from, I think, German, um, just meaning strange or unusual, or also kind of like untrustworthy, suspicious. So like if you've ever heard the phrase queer is a $3 bill, um, that's kind of where that comes from. Like it doesn't just mean, oh, that's weird. How odd. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's suspicious. We shouldn't trust that. Exactly. Like it's like. There's never been a $3 bill in circulation in this country, so maybe that's not actually currency. Mm -hmm. It's kind of queer. So that's kind of where that comes from. But the first uh, usage of the word queer in relation to homosexuality uh, starts in about the 1890s. Actually, the first uh, recorded written usage of queer in reference to homosexuality is about Oscar Wilde, which... Perfect. Chef's kiss. I love that so much. Um, (laughs) And it explains... Dorian Gray. Uh-huh. 100%. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one time I was, speaking of Dorian Gray, one time I was talking to my uncle. He's so straight. Bless his little heart. But, uh, Dorian Gray came up somehow and he was like, oh, that was such a boring book. And I'm like, it's a gay book. And he was like, there was so much prose about, about, like, each other's hands. And I'm like, yeah. Like, that's because they're super gay. Gay, <laughs> gay prose. And he was like, oh, really? I'd never write it that way. I just thought it was a lot of boring prose. Of this man waxing poetic about another man's hands. And his, like, general beauty. General beauty, and, like, it just seemed boring. I'm like, yeah, because it's gay. (laughs) You think it's boring because you're straight. Uh, Anyhow, it's about... First written recorded usage of the word queer is about Oscar Wilde. It's from a letter of this, like, nobleman. I can't remember his title. But Oscar Wilde and this guy's nephew had been screwed around. And this dude was pissed. So in this letter, he's like, can you believe this Oscar Wilde, the snob queer, that's like getting getting my name sullied. I like how snob is yeah, before uh-huh. queer. He's mm-hmm. like, oh man, this thing, this guy, he thinks he has the right to my nephew, just like I think I have the right to... Tell my nephew what to do. <laughs> right? Gosh. Right? Uh, it's ridiculous. But so the first recorded usage is very derogatory. And from this, a lot of people conclude that the early history of the word queer in reference to homosexuality was purely derogatory. Like, it was never an identity until it starts being reclaimed in the 80s, which we will get to in a minute. But the research that I did doesn't reflect that. There are two books that I uh, found that talk about queer as an identity in the early 1900s. And those are Gay New York, (laughs) The Making of a Gay Male World by George Chauncey. And Queer London by Matt Holbrook. And both Those of them... are both great names. I like I that know, very right, much. Right. And they both explore gay male subculture in 
around the turn of the 20th century. Okay. Up to roughly World War II. And during this time, queer was actually used as a self-identifier. Um, and it wasn't used in self-identifier in the way we use it today. It was actually in conversation with the other main identifier for gay men at the time, which in New York was fairies and in London was queens. Um, so at so, the time, the, like, gay wasn't really a thing, and it was just yet. queer, fairies, queens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so queers defined themselves kind of in opposition to fairies in New York, queens in London. And, as is often the case, um, when you define yourself in opposition to someone else. There's a bit of a conflict. There's a bit of a conflict. Yeah, uh, there's a bit of an othering. There's a bit of resentment. Because (laughs) queer men, or queers, queers was actually a noun, not an adjective at the time. Hmm. So, fairies and queens in New York and London, respectively. um, And the cultural context around them does differ a little bit. But for our purposes, exploring the word queer, they're fairly analogous. Fairies, as George Chauncey describes them, define themselves as much in about their femininity and their gender expression as they did in their solicitation of male sexual partners. Okay. So, so they came off as a slightly more femme than mm-hmm. queers. Yeah, uh-huh. Fairies and queens did a lot of drag, or what we would today call drag. Yeah. And really explored the feminine aspects of maybe a little more gender bendy than queers yeah Yeah, exactly and queers defined themselves by their solicitation of male sexual partners and by their presenting masculinity correctly for their social status okay so they Um, want they maybe i don't know if they wanted to pass but they they more passed as a mm-hmm. quote-unquote normal. Yeah. Normal not exactly. being a term that I like to throw exactly. out. But they yeah. fit into the social norms of the time, but still yeah. were attracted to and had sex with other men. Yes, exactly. I think a really awesome love story, kind of like a Romeo and Juliet, but with, you know, older characters and, like, better consenting characters would be between this 1920s queer and fairy in New York. I, I think that would be a really great love I story. I would read the hell out of that. Oh my god. They each have um, their own little families of queers yeah. and fairies. It'd be great. And they're like, how dare you? Yeah, no, that would be great. I love that. And then there's also this class dynamic between fairies and queers. So fairies as an archetype, and there's like some blending between these, uh, and it's not a strict rule. But fairies as an archetype is mainly working class, whereas queers are mainly middle to upper class. So a lot of the queers' definition uh, and performance of masculinity is tied to them not wanting to lose their class status for performing gender incorrectly. And Which so, would make an even better story for this, like... I know, right? It would be so good. <laughs> Queer um, for uh, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> it would be so good. If anyone wants to write that, hit me up. I'll, I'll uh, help you with your bibliography. Because, um, you know, all great historical fiction has a bibliography. I'll edit it and then talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there's this class dynamic, and there's a lot of animosity between queers and fairies, or queens, because... When you define yourself in opposition to something, as I said, you tend to get a little uh, aggressive and Mm -hmm. disdainful. 
a about self-righteous. the self-righteous. Yeah, a little <laughs> self-righteous against the people you're defining yourself in opposition to. Yep, I've seen that in many facets, including in the environmental world, where it's yeah. like, oh, well, I am holier than thou. Mm-hmm. I am vegan, and you're not mm-hmm. good enough. You're not on par with how virtuous I am. I exactly. can think of a number of people just off the top of my head <laughs> that unfortunately fit into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, instead of just being inclusive. Yeah, so queers often derided fairies and queens for the way they carried themselves, citing their effeminacy as being degrading, um, showing a lack of respect for themselves, and encouraging outsiders to belittle all homosexual men regardless of their presence or lack of effeminacy. So it's very much playing into this respectability politics. Yeah. Though, again, that's not a word they would use at the time. (laughs) We're a little more advanced now. Yeah. (laughs) Developed in different direction. (laughs) Thank goodness. But yeah, so between these two uh, works, Chauncey's and Holbrook's work, we can conclude that queer was not unambiguously a slur, which is what a lot of people make it out to be. And... From the second that it entered our lexicon with uh, homosexual connotations, it's had a very messy relationship between respectable and identity, between slur and this is who I am. And I guess that just depends on who's using it, right? Exactly. Because even if a homophobic person today came up to me and was like, you fucking queer, of course they're trying to use it as a slur. Exactly. And then I'm here sitting saying, I'm a queer. And Uh it's not a slur to me, but it just depends on who's saying it and how they're obviously trying to prevent it. Exactly. And that brings us kind of up into reclamation. Before we jump into reclamation, though, uh, the word queer as a self-identifier had largely fallen out of use roughly after World War II. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting reasons for this, but the TLDR is basically that... You're going to have to tell me what TLDR means. Too long, didn't read. It's too a, long, didn't read. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The internet thing that whenever you put at well, the bottom of a, te- of a really long wall of text. But the, the short version of how queer fell out of gay vogue, as it were, is that gay comes into popular usage. So gay men who are coming into themselves and into the community are much more likely to describe themselves as gay or as homophiles. I wonder if then as queer. Part of that is because well queer originated from not a great word and then gay originated from a word that literally means happy. Have you thought about that? The- yeah. So it doesn't map on evenly to that, but I think that's definitely a factor. Okay. Just if I were to look at the original definition, Mm -hmm. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'd want to be called gay because, (laughs) you know, I feel happy and I am happy with my sexual orientation and gender identity, whereas queer... I mean, I love the word queer. It's obviously Mm -hmm. what I use for the podcast, but uh, Yeah. yeah, just interesting. I Yeah, no, the politics of it are very... They're messy and I love it, but... uh, So it falls out of gay vogue, basically. And gay comes onto the scene as, like, this is our word. Um, And there's a lot of really interesting context of this. If you want to learn more, uh, Alan Baber Bay's book, Coming Out Under Fire, Gay Men and Women of World War II. Amazing book. And there's also a documentary of the same name. um, That has, like, the interviews that Baber Bay did in researching the book. Um, such a good book. Coming good out book. under fire. Mm-hmm. All and right. we can link to that in the show notes. We yep. can link to all my sources. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so roughly after World War II, we come to a point where queer is mostly being used as a slur. It's not really being used as an identity very much anymore. But it's really important to note that language doesn't change uniformly, it changes inconsistently across language communities, right? Like Which, I'm over like here, any word, right? Yeah, exactly, any word. Like, um, I'm over here still using weird-ass nonsense slang that, like, I, I use the word rat a lot, and somebody told me the other day, I haven't heard that word in so long, and mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I use it, like, all the time. I use the word dope, and then I was around somebody who was using the phrase, that slaps, over and uh -huh. over. And it's like, wow, that's what my high school student said. And I wonder if my high school students thought it was weird that I used the word dope. It, yeah. It's just such a, it depends yeah. on yeah, where you so. are, who you are. And if I said the word dope at one of my board meetings for Great Salt Lake Autobahn, they'd be like, hmm, okay, <laughs> instead of like terrific or neat. Right, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So like language usage doesn't change uniformly. It doesn't, like, you can't put strict time codes yep. around language usage. Like, you can't say that this stopped being used this way in the year of our Lord, yep. 1948 <laughs> or whatever, and started being used this way at this year, whatever. You kind of have to look at the way different communities are still using it. Like, there's actually a really interesting source that I found talking about an older group of gay men who still use the word queer to describe themselves up until the 90s, and... This group in the United States? In England, actually. In England, okay. Yeah, um, and it was like, it was in this Encyclopedia of Homosexuality. Great title. Published in 1990. Um, and the entry of the word queer, which I'm really surprised that it was published this late, with this framing of the word queer. And it's told, it's, the entry was just like, this word is offensive, it is the worst thing you can call a gay person. Oh gosh. Um... And then goes on to say that there are still some gay men who use the word in reasons we basically don't like and don't understand. And, like, we say that they affect to believe the word is value-free. So Value-free meaning? Value-free meaning they use it in a way that is not derogatory and we disagree with that. Oh, okay. Um, so, like, basically uh, this text was deriding these older gay men for still using the word queer. When they've um, probably been using it since, uh... Since it was in gay vogue. Yep. Okay. Which since is before my, it was even offensive. That's just my hypothesis, but that's the same group of men who were who came up using that word as late as the 40s, who are still using it, and older and younger gay people are being like, how dare you? And they're like... <laughs> you offensive old this, men. <laughs> I've been doing this for longer than you've been a person, so, yep. like, back off. But yeah, so that kind of brings us up into the 80s and 90s. To what a lot of people now understand as the reclamation yeah. mm -hmm. of the word, which I didn't know how it was used before that, and in my yeah. mind it was just that is yeah. when it came back into queer vogue. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, we've reached a point now that queer, uh, where you, when used to denote homosexuality, is mostly used as a slur. Um... And there are many other homophobic slurs circulating around this time. But queer, queer is a little bit different. Queer, unlike many homophobic slurs, uh, doesn't conjure a specific image. So hmm, if I that's tell you, interesting to think about. Yeah. So if I tell you, oh, she's a bull dyke, yep. you immediately have an image in your head of her haircut and her leather jacket, right? Yep. Fag, dyke, carpet muncher, cocksucker, all of these things conjure up a specific image. 
uh, a specific action, often a sex act, a specific yeah. way of being. But queer doesn't do that. Queer tells, doesn't tell you what it is. Queer tells you what it isn't. It isn't normal. It isn't ordinary. It isn't straight. I kind of love that, that it doesn't conjure up an image, just for, yeah. like, me personally today. Yeah. If I was just a, a voice, I guess if you hear my voice, you could maybe imagine what I look like, but if I were just to, like, send a message out that said, I'm queer, it could be anything. Exactly, exactly. So there's this really interesting rhetorical possibility of the word queer that other homophobic slurs don't have. And... Powerful tool. It's a powerful tool. <laughs> um, so activists and academics both kind of hone in on this possibility. Engaged. Around this time? Around after this time. World yeah, War... Er, no, in the early... Oh, early, early 80s. 80s yes. Early 90s, yeah. So by the 80s, early 90s, queer is pretty unambiguously a slur. <laughs> so activists and academics both kind of hone in on... The word queer. On the word queer, and it's like different rhetorical possibilities as opportunities to use, uh, to explore. Um, and we'll talk about activists first because that's what I'm more excited about. Um, <laughs> to be completely honest about where my bias lies, queer theory is not my jam. I can talk about it all day long, but it is not my favorite thing to talk about. Okay. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> not m- Most of them aren't positive. <laughs> but so activists, the late 80s is the height of the AIDS crisis, which is not just a public health crisis, but is also made up by the societal homophobic backlash. And it's honestly impossible to overstate the impact the AIDS crisis had yeah. on that time, on the LGBTQ community during this time. It is everything. And it's just so crazy to think about how <laughs> impactful it was and how, I mean, I feel like if I did interview some of my older family members who are just incredible, smart, caring human beings, they wouldn't have much to say about how it impacted their life at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's really swept under the rug. Yeah, it is. Like, it, that's, <laughs> It'd be like if the, the pandemic wider... was swept right. under the rug. Right. It was uncomfortable to talk about for communities it wasn't affecting directly. Yeah. So it doesn't get talked about. So to put this in perspective a little bit, I have some numbers. Um, between 81, uh, which was the first, when the first recorded case of AIDS was documented, and the year 2000, so... 19 years. In that time period, in the U.S. alone, over 700,000 people had, and over 400,000 of those people died. Just in the U.S. And if you think about those numbers That's just... in proportion <laughs> to how many people uh, identified people as identified LGBTQ, yeah. Yeah, that is... It's an astounding number. Exactly, exactly. I cannot overstate that. <laughs> so there's this very intense loss and anger coming out of this period. So this is the context we find ourselves in um, when queer starts being picked up. There's this great quote from Anne... I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I'm so sorry for all of the people listening who are like, that's not how you pronounce this. But uh, Anne Chekovich... Chekhovich? I I don't fucking know. Okay, Anne. Um, Anne. She writes that a lot of the activist energy is forged out of the emotional crucible of anger and grief created by homophobic neglect and escalating number of deaths. So that's our context, is the emotional crucible of grief and anger. In this crucible we find ourselves in. Gay people are angry, devastated. There was virtually no public response to try and curb the AIDS crisis. President Reagan 
may he rot in hell, <laughs> did not say the word AIDS in public until I think it was 86, at least five years into the crisis, That's... where thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of people had already died. What a horrible homophobe. What a horrible, racist, homophobic, sexist shitbag may he rot in hell. <laughs> um, sorry, I just get really angry anytime I think too long about Ronald Reagan. Valid feelings, for Thank sure. You. Thank <laughs> you. But yeah, so gay people are dying by the droves, and nobody gives a shit. Yeah. So gay activists start taking up the homophobic slurs that have been used against them, turning them around, and weaponizing them in a way that purposefully unsettles those with power and privilege who are choosing to ignore the crisis. Like, if you've ever heard, we're here, we're queer, get used to it, that's yeah, where this comes from. I have from. heard of that. So queer is first picked up in reclamation because all of the homophobic slurs, including fag and dyke, are being reclaimed and used in self-defense in this socio-historical moment. Hell yeah, good job, queers. Yeah, they were amazing. Also, if you've ever heard, uh, not gay isn't happy, but queers and fuck you, <laughs> that's where this comes from as well. Um, like, there are two, broadly speaking, and slightly oversimplifying things for the sake of narrative, there are two main responses to the AIDS crisis within the community. There is the respectable, we have to straighten up and be respectable so that straight people yeah. will give a shit that we're dying and fund research to stop us from dying at this pace. Jesus. And there is the response, fuck this, nobody gives a shit, why the hell should I be respectable for them? Yeah. They don't care about me. They don't care about my community dying. They wouldn't care if I personally died. In fact, they don't, because I've seen it. Why the hell should I straighten up for them? Um, and brought and again, this isn't unambiguous, like, two sides. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of people who are going back and yeah. forth between these. And as you said, it's an oversimplification. And, exactly. And again, this is, I think, very relatable to today in 2020, going through this second mm -hmm. big wave of... A civil rights movement almost with yeah. Black Lives Matter. Some people feel as though they need to, I don't know, whiten up or yeah. be more presentable and yeah. that is such a sad thing to think. It sucks that anybody's put in that position that they yeah. have to it's... change themselves to be accepted and to not be killed. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities in these movements. So... People are, like, out here in the streets being like, you're gonna call me a queer? You're gonna call me a fag? Well, guess what, honey? So am I. I am. <laughs> I am. I am a fag. I do suck cock. What do you want from me? Mm -hmm. Is that the worst you've got for me? Because fuck you. You can't hurt me with what I am. Mm-hmm. Queer and fag and dyke and all of these slurs are being picked up and turned around and used in reclamation and in self-defense. But what we see is that over the last 30 years, fag hasn't stuck around like dyke and certainly not like queer has. In wider queer community, I don't hear people using the word fag very often. I don't remember the last time I really heard that. And, you know, I yeah. hang out with a bunch of folks yeah. who are pretty deep into the community. Yeah. I just don't hear that yeah. word. Dyke has stuck around a little bit more than the word fag. Like, uh, the Dyke March, that was actually started in the same time period as well. <laughs> but queer is so ubiquitous 
that it's an umbrella term, although not an uncandescent one, yeah. for the entire community. It's like real far along on this journey of reformation. <laughs> and I argue that this is because of the rhetorical possibilities of queer. Yeah, I, like I said earlier, I love how fluid it is. Yeah! Um, it's almost like a plume of smoke that can mm-hmm. really look like anything at any point in time. Because yeah. even for me, someone who... At points, it's like, oh, I do enjoy presenting femme, mm-hmm. but maybe in an hour or next week, mm-hmm. I feel really uncomfortable with that. Like, I yeah. don't want to wear a necklace. I don't want to wear a dress. I can't relate to that. And other mm-hmm. moments, I can. And that's fluid, yeah. like the word queer, and yeah. that's why I like it and identify with it. Yeah. Uh, the word queer captures a very beautiful possibility um, <laughs> that activists capitalize on or like capture i don't want to say capitalize because now i don't like capitalism and neither did they but they use it but they use it yeah because at this time activists are trying to find a way to unite gay men and lesbians and trans folks and bisexuals and everyone else who isn't straight into a coherent community so we can pool our political power and mobilize more effectively. This is also when the acronym LGBT emerges, is out of this Okay. um, As a way to meet this end. Before this, different factions of our community were very separate from each other. If you watch documentaries about the AIDS crisis, you'll hear survivors talking about lesbians who came and did nursing work for the gay men who were dying. Yeah. And I don't remember which documentary I watched this in, um, but there was an interview with an older gay man who had survived the AIDS crisis talking about how they were shocked when the lesbians came because there was a very stark separation. There was a lot of uh, antagonism between gay men and lesbians. Well, I'm so glad that's changed now because whoever we are as queers, it's nice to have other people who, one, kind of understand. Yeah. Like, you understand the struggle to whatever extent, even if... Uh, You are maybe a wealthy, white, cis, gay man compared to a transgender person of color. There still has to be a little bit of understanding, Mm -hmm. and that in and of itself is so valuable. Yeah, yeah. So during this time, that's kind of what they're working with, and uh, activists are kind of realizing that we need to be united in some way, shape, or form so that we can pool what existing political power our groups have and mobilize. Yeah. So queer emerges as a uh, somewhat controversial <laughs> term to identify with to meet this goal. Queer signals not the details of how you do sexuality and gender, but signals that you do sexuality and gender in a way that is rejected by or is actively rejecting the normative or dominant culture. So basically, queer is not straight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> queer is, I don't care how you do gender, how you do sexuality, you are welcome here. Yeah, I love that so much. Yeah, and queer is capable of doing this because of the rhetorical possibilities that it's not specificity enables. Uh, it doesn't capture any one particular image or stereotype. It isn't even gender-specific, unlike fag or dyke. Yeah. So it allows lots of different people, of lots of different experiences, to unite underneath it. It's one of my favorite things about the word, <laughs> honestly, is that because it's so non-specific, but so fuck you, at the sa- in the same breath. Yeah, just thinking about all this is making me so excited, because I have used queer, and then people kind of look at me and they're like, well, what does that mean? 
One, I don't really want to be more specific because yeah. if I tell you I am bisexual and it's, you know, some dude, they're like, oh, so that means you like to also fuck women. I'm not trying to go for imagery right now mm-hmm. for you to turn yourself on. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you that I identify in a way that maybe makes it a little harder for me to move through life because there yeah. are people indeed like you. Uh-huh. Um, or if I use the word queer, I just want to relate to anybody else yeah. who you know, isn't straight, and they don't have to be like, oh, you do or you don't do this specific thing, and Mm. now I'm going to picture it. Yeah, it's very nonspecific in a way that enables you to explain yourself more if you want, but saying I'm queer can be the end of that sentence. Yeah, and it's so empowering. that conversation. You don't have to give any follow-up answers if you don't want Mm -hmm. to. And I'm not asking any straight person to tell me what they do in their sexual life. So right. yeah. I love the word queer for this reason, <laughs> and I think it's really interesting that a lot of people have landed on this as their central identity and as a community term. Because again, it, it does that really interesting work of bringing a lot of experiences together. Yeah. So we can be a queer community. It doesn't matter if you don't do gender like I do gender. (laughs) We're still both queer. Yep. And that can be a really powerful point of identification and shared experience. Yeah. And so the word queer does a lot of work for our community and I love it. But I kind of also want to talk about the way that queer is used as a framework. For instance, in your podcast. So to talk about that, we kind of have to talk about queer theory, which... Again, to my chagrin. Not your favorite. Um, it's my favorite. So around the same time, late 80s, early 90s, academics are also sussing out queer's rhetorical possibilities, although they harness it in a very different way. Queer theory first emerges in 1990 and is a body of academic work that grows out of post-structuralism and takes up ideas about normalcy in relation to sexuality and gender. So queer theory lands on this word as a way uh, to name and draw out and theorize about things that we were already kind of playing with in theories about what is normal. In early queer theory especially, you'll see things about the normal and the queer. Okay. Um, and as this idea of like in contrast to what is normal. I'm a little sad that that is still the context today. I definitely mm-hmm. think it's more normalized to not be straight mm-hmm. today. Yeah. It'd be so cool if we didn't even need yeah. to have these discussions. Of course, we should always have them to reflect right. on history, mm-hmm. but if the norm was, yeah. I tell you what my pronouns are, I don't assume that you're attracted to any particular being, we'll get there if we get there. Right. Hopefully we see that at some point in right. some spaces in our lifetime. Yeah. I agree with the vibe. If not the particularities, because like I love my labels personally. Okay. Like I agree with that. I don't want to have to explain myself to fucking everyone. Mm-hmm. But I've found a lot of comfort in my labels and a lot of validation, and I've been able to come into who I am within those labels. Yeah. Because I have a framework. Identifying as non-binary gives me opportunities that I don't have. I don't necessarily have. Yeah to explore without that language. Like, I didn't explore those things before I knew that I could because mm-hmm. there's this word out there. I love labels. I really do. <laughs> I guess But I'm... also, I, I totally see what you're saying. I do love 
the labels and the language all around it. But I just can't wait till it's, you know, instead of yeah. us just assuming someone's straight or just assuming someone's gender, we just don't do that. And yeah. we wait until right. it's an appropriate moment right. to talk about what those yeah. labels are. To continue on this tangent a little bit, something that I have felt a lot. You know, I worked at a high school and mm-hmm. uh, I've dated people, but because nothing was like necessarily that serious compared to my co-workers who have spouses and children and they're buying right. houses and they're openly talking about this family that they have I don't necessarily feel valid enough right. to share this thing even though it is like a huge part of my life whoever right. my significant other was mm-hmm. at the time oh man I can't talk about this for you you can just talk about your husband or mm-hmm. your wife and if right. I talked about my partner yeah it almost feels like I'm putting myself out for display because no, it's... Yeah, no, I totally get I don't that. know if that came across correctly. No, no, I, I, I think I get what you're saying. I like labels for the sake of internal community discussion. Yeah. I don't love when straight people feel entitled to information about my identity yeah. and how I express myself. You don't need to know that. That's not something yeah. that you need to know unless I want to share. Yeah. So I totally get what you're saying. But yeah, so back to queer theory a little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, queer theory is exploring what it means, what queer can mean in a theoretical framework. If you've ever heard queer used as a verb to queer something, like for instance, David Bowie queers masculinity. Oh, okay. If you've ever heard queer used as a verb, that comes out of queer theory. It's so hard to talk about queer theory without going entirely down the rabbit hole because that's how post-structuralism be. But queer theory is really dense academic philosophical theory. It's one of the main beefs that contemporary queer activists have with it is that it is really inaccessible and it's not really talking about them. Activists and academics are processing reclamation at the same time. Yeah. And as much as they're both loath to admit it because like they both hate each other and I totally understand <laughs> that, they're happening concurrently. And so they develop together and influence each other. Both activist and academic usages function to normalize queer, even if they do in different ways. Over the last 30 years, academics have written a lot of words about queerness and published an entire field of work about queer theory. And having this word printed over and over and over in academic journals and the highest echelons of publishing in some ways has served to institutionalize and thus normalize the word's usage. Yeah. I mean, especially if you think about academics, usually that's middle to upper class, Mm -hmm. and they are the intellectuals, they are the people in the academic world, whether that's undergraduate, graduate, PhD, those people are usually the ones that go into government. They become politicians. So if it's used and being explored in that space, not to say that the school of business and the school of gender studies or anything (laughs) are going to overlap, but if it's still in the same space, that still has a really big impact. And that's one thing I do appreciate now a little Mm -hmm. more about how our goals are set up so I have a lot of beef. Oh, same, same. That's why I'm getting my educational studies degree. Yeah. <laughs> go yell at college. But yeah, academics use this word a lot, and queer community uses this word a lot. So even though there's a lot of tension 
between queer activists and queer academics, they're still using the word queer. Uh, and queer can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The academics, if you're using a queer framework in an academic sense, you're probably trying to destabilize the normal. So you're trying to approach this question of what is normal and subvert it. Queer can be a really multifaceted framework because there are so many ways to disturb to what is normal. Whether that be gender, whether that be sexuality, whether mm -hmm. that just be polyamory. I yeah, absolutely polyamory. Or at least that's my hot take. I, I, th I personally so. believe that polyamory is very, very queer. As a queer historian and <laughs> person who uses the word queer professionally um, and has spent a lot of fucking time looking at what queerness is, Yes, polyamory is queer. So a lot of queerness and a queer framework, to me, would mean tackling some of these social norms around sexuality, around gender, around relationships, around gender roles, even. And you're saying this as an activist. Yeah, yeah and I'm saying this as someone who studies queerness academically, but also who, as someone who identifies as queer. Yeah. So Which does, I'm sure doesn't both. always overlap, unfortunately. Not always. Not always. <laughs> But there's a lot of really interesting conversations to be had around queer, queer frameworks. That's kind of what queer means in my academic experience and in my personal experience. Um, and I'd love to hear what your experience has been and how you've used queer as a framing tool for this podcast and what you've meant by it and what, what if any, thoughts I've, like... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you gave me a lot to think about, which I appreciate. Again, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I should have said this right up top, but I myself am not a professional queer. I am queer. I'm a professional environmentalist, if anything. But for me, it is how I identify. And as I have said throughout this podcast, I like it because it doesn't pinpoint me in any way. I have a hard time pinpointing myself and then bringing in queer, aka the issues of the LGBTQIA plus community into environmentalism, into feminism, making all of it like as intersectional as possible, which, you know, is not something that I am a professional at, which is why I want to bring people on. But it is such a huge part of the spaces that I move through, and it is really important to me. It's a big part of my life. Using it in the framework of this podcast, I just want to be able to relate the queer experience mm -hmm. to environmentalism and to all the issues that I find important and want to be a part of, whether I'm pushing to stop the Utah Inland Port in Salt Lake City or to address climate change or any environmental injustice, any social injustice, whether that's getting health care and coverage and protection for people. Queer people, the queer community is a huge part of this space. And I know <laughs> that the activism that started 52 years ago with Stonewall, like seeing how that has progressed alongside with maybe the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. Having those things come together is so important to me because they're two big issues. I would say a third one it goes along with the Black Lives Matter movement, which I am a huge supporter of. I am, you know, I'm a white person myself, and so I can only hope to be an ally and the best ally I can be, but those three issues to me really seem like 
what we need to move into the future to create high quality lives. And that's all we can really hope for. So I guess to me, it just really brings it all together, not just feminism or eco-feminism or environmentalism, but the queer intersectional eco-feminism. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. I love what you said about contextualizing them with each other. Um, yeah. Like putting them together. That's the words you use. Putting them together. Uh, because Cause they're think, not separate. No, they're and not separate. Like we so talked often... about the pandemic versus the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. the AIDS crisis versus the Black Lives Matter movement right now. There's so many parallels. Uh-huh. And if we can not just pull all the queers together to get more yeah. uh, gravitas, but pull all of it together yeah, and, you know, maybe change some politicians' minds. We'll see how that goes in Utah anytime soon, but... For real? I think so many different movements have so much to learn from each other. Yeah. What we do really well in queer activism is not necessarily the same lessons that have been learned through environmental activism. Yeah. And vice versa. And I feel I'm on the cusp of both. Yeah. In one realm, I in the queer activism realm, I want to bring in my environmental shtick. And then in the environmental activism realm, when I'm doing advocacy, it's like, oh, well, I want to bring in my queerness and tell you what my pronouns are and make you want to think about how this is affecting people of color and really making that a pinnacle of... Yeah. What our movements are, they all need to be together and they Mm -hmm. will be stronger together. I totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I loved this. I loved this so much. Thank you for letting me be on your podcast and ramble excessively (laughs) about queerness and the word queer. I, as you can probably tell, can talk all day about this. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you for letting me have some time to talk. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's made me more well-rounded and it was lots of fun. And maybe we can have you on in the future to talk about a few other topics. So I would love that. <laughs> I would actually love that so much. So All right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for listening. And thanks to AJ for the intro music. And as my dad always says, use your head and be clever. Bye everyone. <laughs> <laughs>